Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am a nutrition and exercise physiology professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And today we have with us uh, Dr. Jeremy Franson. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, how's it going, Lonnie? Um, we're going to start with just a little bit of news, then we're going to talk to Dr. Franson. He's another example of a professor and a PhD with a strength interest, strength sports. Um, but a little bit of news here quickly. Something came out this week that I got the tip from John Mike, actually, who Dr. Franson knows. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he sent me an article from the Los Angeles Times, which is called Time to End the War Against Saturated Fat. I just want to bring everybody up to speed a little bit about this. You may have heard about this. Strength and Muscle Sport News. But essentially, the article sort of states... Forget the statins, bring back the bacon, saturated fat isn't the widow maker it was once made out to be, uh, according to a British cardiologist. This British cardiologist, Asim Malhotra, made um, an editorial, basically, that really attacks a lot of things. He says um, market forces have put people at risk, basically. He says after the Framingham Heart Study showed a correlation between total cholesterol uh, and risk for coronary artery disease in the early 70s, patients at risk for heart disease were urged to swear off meat, you know, go on statin drugs, um, which are not free of side effects themselves and that sort of thing. And I, he makes some good points. Um, and I'm going to read you one quote from the bottom of this, too, sort of a counterpoint. But it says, Malhotra cites a 2009 UCLA study showing that three-quarters of patients admitted to the hospital with acute myocardial infarction, right, heart attack, do not have high total cholesterol. What they do have at a rate of 66% is metabolic syndrome. And a lot of our listeners know that metabolic syndrome is a combination of high blood pressure, uh, higher fasting blood sugar or higher insulin, not blood sugar that's so high that it's diabetes necessarily, but central obesity, you know, low HDL cholesterol. Um, but a lot of the attention around that comes from the carbohydrate issue, you know, and I think that's what he's making out is basically, you know, we live on an incredibly sugary diet and, and that sort of thing. Now, if you go to BMJ itself, the title of the journal article itself or column here is uh, observations. Saturated fat is not the major issue. And it says saturated fat has been demonized since the 70s when a landmark study concluded that there was a correlation between the incidence of heart disease and total cholesterol which then correlated with the percentage of calories provided from fat fat. It says, but correlation is not causation, he says. And of course, our listeners know we've bitched about that many times, essentially, which is correlation is not cause and effect. I mean, for example, you can look at ice cream intake go up in the summer. You can look at murder rates go up in the summer. But that doesn't mean ice cream rates are causing murder rates, right? That's like the ice cream catastrophe. Um <laughs> So, and he's making some good points. So a lot of this stuff, you know, of course, we've got statins involved and all that sort of thing. Um, one of the comments on the New York Times page itself 
points out something that I think is useful. It says it's a well-informed opinion piece, but it's not standing entirely on solid ground. Uh, I think the author knows that. The research on nutrition is often contradictory, and those who want to sell books or call attention to themselves ignore the complexities, and basically that's true. They say, we, I, we're going to show you how to cut through the hype, but they really can't do that. Um, it's just too complex. And I think what this guy maybe isn't emphasizing enough is that that complexity comes partly from your genes, right? People respond differently. Um, when we were in Spain, we were looking at some data that saturated fat is particularly fattening for some people if they have a particular gene. And if you don't have that gene, then maybe carbohydrates are a much bigger problem for you. So, you know, it, it, people like to make issues black and white, you know, bring back the bacon and drop the statins. Well, perhaps. But I think a lot of our listeners in the strength community, maybe because we're biased toward meat, <laughs> but we're a little bit better read, I think, than most people when it comes to things like uh, saturated fat. I mean, for example, you could find uh, plenty of information that stearic acid, which is one of the, the sort of the main fat fat in beef, may not be atherogenic. It may not even lead to heart disease increases like some other saturated fats. Um, but, you know, the data is mixed, and I think it's mixed because we have different uh, genomes at work, you know, when people consume this stuff. But I just wanted to share that with everybody as sort of our news this week. I don't know, Dr. Franson, what do you think about the whole sat-fat issue versus carbohydrate? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, as you mentioned, for some, uh, if you're consuming a lot of total calories are really high, uh, you're consuming a lot of fat, saturated fat, um, certainly, you know, that could be an issue. But uh, I'm in agreement more that, you know, carbohydrate, excessive carbohydrate is really, um, can be the culprit, uh, especially if, you know, um, if you're consuming a lot of these very simple sugar, prepackaged types, um, type of carbohydrate. So mm-hmm. um, I never have found that, um, you know, taking in some uh, saturated fat meals or proteins with it, um, you know, really causes this large increase in in cholesterol. If you're exercising, you're fairly lean, um, you're, you're eating a well-balanced diet, um, and those other things that uh, it's, it's not this, um, you know, the simple, it's always trying to blame one simple uh, component of the diets and demonizing that. Um, food, um, and it's just often a lot more complex than that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Physical activity mm-hmm. patterns. I mean, they're pointing out here in this yeah. in the BMJ observation paper. It mm-hmm. says um, recently a JAMA study revealed that low fat diets showed the greatest decrease in energy expenditure, uh, as mm-hmm. well as an unhealthy lipid pattern, um, mm-hmm. and increased insulin resistance compared to low carbohydrate or low glycemic index diets. And I think that is maybe it's obvious to a lot of our listeners, right? But as they removed more and more fat and they got the fat intake from Americans from what was closer to 40 down to maybe 30% of the calories, when you remove the fat, people have to eat something. So they start replacing fats in the diet with sugars, you know, with refined carbs. I mean, the, the worst mm-hmm. example I can think of is, is peanut butter. You know, they remove the monounsaturated healthy fat and they replace it with sugar. You know, I mean, yeah. for with the you know with the low fat peanut butter, low that's fat just peanut, a train yeah. wreck. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. 
Um, um, obviously, there's going to be different effects, not just on HDL and heart disease, but uh, a lot of people in the weight training communities will point out that you'll need some saturated fat or at least monounsaturated, depending on the studies you read, to uh, maintain testosterone concentration. Yeah, yeah, uh, things absolutely. Like that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've yeah. seen myself, I've looked at studies pretty closely that very low fat, very high fiber diets, they'll knock 15% off your total testosterone. I mean, that's not oh, the difference wow. from... You know, it, it's not yeah. going to put you on the cover of a magazine versus being a doughboy, but, you know, it's it's enough that it could affect, I would think, probably your strength or your recovery ability, you know, some of those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, but let's get into mm-hmm. you here, uh, and then okay. we're, we're going to talk about the uh, American Society of Exercise Physiology meeting uh, later in the topic, but first maybe tell listeners about your origins. I know you do strongman competitions and that sort of yeah. thing, and uh, and yet you're a PhD. So how did that happen? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up um, playing all sorts of sports, uh, like a lot of us. Um, my primary sport was hockey uh, back in the day. I grew up in northern Minnesota, so a big hockey uh, state, of course. Um, and, you know, as I grew up, I um, kind of caught the weightlifting bug, um, you know, seeing the bodybuilding magazines, what have you, training in the off season for hockey, uh, building up strength levels. Um, so, you know, as I kind of progressed into kind of through, uh, in the high school, I was really, um, you know, made resistance training, weight training, a regular part of my, um, you know, my activities and, um, then really got a passion for it. Uh, as I continued to get into college, um, I remember when I, uh, first got in as my undergrad, I wasn't quite sure. I knew I wanted to go into this area in general, and I think I might have picked uh, nutrition as a major, um, but somehow they messed it up, and they put me in an exercise science. Um, and then I huh. was like, oh, wow, there's a department, there's an exercise science? I didn't really know. I mean, I was a freshman in college. and um, So, yeah, it just kind of happened. I was put into an, in an exercise uh, physiology uh, well, it was called exercise science at that time, and then, um, which is actually around the time that the uh, ASCP founder Tommy Boone um, was coming to his college, College of Saint Scholastica, and I just fell into that department. Um, and then, um, you know, as far as my academic career, the rest is kind of history. Went on and uh, got my bachelor's and then master's in exercise physiology, and. Um, Took some time off after that. I got in the field uh, with a master's. Um, some, you know, listeners out there get your bachelor's or and then go on and get your master's. You might find it still challenging in the real world to, you know, get some um, higher-end job. I mean, I, you're oftentimes a little bit perhaps overqualified for personal training or you feel that way with a master's. Um, and, but then, you know, teaching um, maybe at a community college, but then, you know, to teach at a university, the PhD is required. But I spent years, I mean, all this time, continued to, you know, do resistance training. Um, it was really my passion. I was, I was, I've done it, uh, like I said, since uh, before high school. But, um, but yeah, then worked in the field and, uh, you know, um, spend a lot of time in the trenches, training, for uh, doing training, training some athletes. I've trained, um, you know, top national uh, level uh, female bodybuilder. I think she placed in maybe the top 
15 at nationals one year. I've trained on um, one place I worked at. There were a few um, professional football players. I trained a professional race car driver once, which was interesting. Um, so I got a lot of experience with some athletes and then, of course, your regular general population. Uh, and then, you know, I think you get, you go through college, you may get a degree in exercise science, um, which is heavily focused at that time traditionally, maybe in still some programs on endurance exercise. Um, so really with my background in, in weight training, I felt like I had an advantage as far as going out in the field and, um, applying some of that knowledge. And, um, you know, after spending time in the trenches, I figured it was time to go back at my PhD. Um, when I went down to New Mexico, where I actually met uh, John Mike, and um, down there, you know, I, I watched strongman competitions, of course, on ESPN, like a lot of us uh, growing up, I'm sure, have seen it at some point in time. And, um, you know, there was a state competition down there. I met him. I trained with him uh, for a little while, uh, entered the lightweight. For some reason, I'm just one of those guys, and maybe some listeners out there can relate that, you might not look that big or that strong, but then, you know, kind of out of nowhere, you're pretty strong. I think with my deadlift, at least, um, I've surprised people, you know, pulling around 600 pounds at a 200-pound body weight. And I don't look perhaps physically impressive in clothes, but um, certain lifts, especially with, like, the legs and back deadlifting, pulling, I'm, I'm pretty strong for my size. Uh, and, of course, that's a strong man. You know, if you're good at that, if you're good at lifting things, you're probably going to be pretty decent at strongman uh, competition. So, um, you know, competed in them several years um, while I was getting my PhD. Uh, finished my PhD in New Mexico, uh, 2000. Uh, was that 2011? So I've been here a few years now, um, and focused my research on and what I presented at the ASCP conference, um, creatine, which I know has been around and sure. My listeners know all about it, but I was looking at more as a rehabilitation nutrient uh, to, to use for muscle atrophy during different conditions. Um, but actually, really, my passion, one of my passions in exercise phys is environmental exercise physiology, exercise in the heat and the cold and altitude, um, so and microgravity. And the NASA had a call for a... Um, a nutritional and a training program that could slow down the muscle loss associated with inactivity or microgravity. And how they measure that on, on planet Earth um, is put people in bed rest, six-degree negative head-down tilt bed rest, kind of simulate the fluid shift, and then the bed rest, of course, is unloading of the bones and muscle, and you have much muscle atrophy. So I try to get that. As my dissertation went really big, you know, a million-dollar um, grant. So I tried, uh, made it through round one, and then didn't get the funding. Uh, typically, they like to keep their research down in, in Texas around Houston. Um, but I said, you know, they never tried creatine, and it made me wonder, you know, they tried amino acids, leucine, these different protein drinks, um, weird esoteric herbs and antioxidants, and I'm like, how have they not tried creatine? You know, because we all know, mm -hmm. I mean, creatine is the most researched supplement out there, muscle strength power, you know, hypertrophy, those kind of things. And um, so I went back and I wanted to see the following year because they had this um, study open again for the next year for those who are submitting proposals. 
And I was like, well, who got who beat out creatine? You know, I thought I had a good idea. They've never tried this before. And they actually changed the wording slightly on the proposal, which read nutrient supplement slash drug and training program that can slow down. So basically what beat out creatine the year I submitted was testosterone. They actually chose a study to use testosterone during bed rest. Um, that's not, that's not fair. Is that a fair that's comparison? That's not fair at all. I mean, how can you say supplement and then go with testosterone? So I was a little irritated. Um, my dissertation advisor, too, Dr. Schneider, she actually worked at NASA for 12 years before she went to New Mexico. So I thought I kind of had an in, and she would help me with designing the protocol and everything like that. But she was really surprised because at the time she worked there, they swore up and down that they would never use testosterone or growth hormone for spaceflight. Um one of the reasons is, well, they wanted to have a mixed-gender crew, like, say, it's going to Mars, one of their long-term missions. We'll see if we ever get there. We've been talking about it for a long time. But, you know, they're an obvious, if they're going to use testosterone, it's kind of then they're saying, in a way, well, we're probably going to go with an all-male crew then, um, you know, which uh, you can argue either way if this is ethical or not or right or not. Um, certainly, you know, Loading men up with testosterone is gonna is gonna beat creatine hands down. But um, for a safe supplement, I thought it was really good. And the research I looked into actually showed that it slowed down muscle loss and uh, strength, um, isokinetic arm flexor strength and uh, flexor and extensor strength during immobilization, which is another way to look at muscle disuse. Okay, uh, now, Jeremy, yeah. let, let me ask you then. So yeah. You're, in a nutshell, you're saying that you're aware that creatine doesn't just have some hypertrophy-assisting effects, but mm-hmm. it has anti-catabolic effects. Yeah, exactly. Because it's independent of a resistance training stimulus. Um, wow. First, Yeah, first done with rats. So this muscle unloading to simulate microgravity when they use animal models, it's called hind limb suspension. They'll take a little mouse or rat and... Uh, wrap up its hind legs and put it, um, raise it above the ground and put it on a little, um, you know, wheel thing. So they can walk around on their front legs, but their hind legs are suspended in right. the air. They lose mm-hmm. the muscle mass over time. Uh, and then they gave rats. So they did this with rats and they fed them creatine or placebo. And they showed a significant slowing of the muscle loss um, okay. with creatine. So that was kind of the first insight in, in an animal study. And then this group, Johnston et al., in 2009, uh, and this was published in the uh, um, NFCA journal, uh, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, which showed that uh, casting, they did an immobilization of the upper arm, the forearm and upper arm, and that, too, during the immobilization period, slowed down. I think they did actually like an MRI cross-sectional, so they looked at the muscle size, the volume, and the nisokinetic uh, fatigue um, flexor and extensor of the arm and um, significantly slowed, mitigated these, the loss that would normally occur during muscle disuse. If we um, were to take something like that and uh, yeah. uh, apply it in a practical way, so if yeah. somebody was injured, for example, like if you yeah. were injured, mm-hmm. uh, certainly if you were in a cast, but even if you weren't, would you, would you right. personally use creatine then to try to slow the muscle loss during that period of less training? I would. I would, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I think that you know, with creatine, we probably all had our personal, you know, experiences with it. Um, you know, do, do we do know that 
10, 15% or so are typically what you call non-responders. But if you've done creatine and you respond well, and I do, um, I certainly know that, you know, if I load up, I usually put on, you know, four or five pounds. And just, you know, with, whether it's that fluid, yes, this fluid, uh, both intracellular and extracellular fluid, uh, that's going to, you know, but that also creates more of an anabolic environment. You know, a, right. a hydrated cell is going to be more anabolic cell with protein synthesis and those kind of things going on. So um, if I was going to be bedridden or, um, you know, knew I had a surgery coming up on my knee or something and it was going to be a cast or whatever, I would take it. And uh, I think it would help slow down um, some of the atrophy strength loss, things like that. That's a nice little gold nugget, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so let me ask you then, um, mm-hmm. you mentioned when I was just in Chicago with you guys that mm-hmm. you're going to do a strongman event coming up soon, so you're still competing, of course. So I'm still competing, yeah. I did a uh, competition in the spring, it was just a push-pull-two event competition, um, and then uh, qualified me for the state, but I'm doing what's called Chicago's Strongest Man here on November the 8th, I believe, uh, 8th and 9th. Um, that Saturday um, coming up. So, yeah, a couple weeks I'm winding down. I'm going to try it again. And uh, I think it's going to be – I know there's going to be several competitors in the 200-pound weight class, so hoping that it's a, a good competition. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Now, so the uh, how do they do the classes then for our listeners who aren't familiar? Um, is it just heavyweight and then under 200 pound, or how how much do they break that down for you? Yeah, yeah, you know it depends. Um, so in this competition, it's going to be a 200 and under is your lightweight, and then they have a 200 to uh, 231 uh, weight pound class, kind of your middleweight, and then a 230 to 265. And then okay. 265 and over, yeah. Sometimes, you know, I competed in New Mexico. The first two years I did it, the lightweight was 200 and under. But then they changed it to, two, I think, 230 and under was lightweight. So I competed. I got up a little bit in body weight, 215, but, you know, came in second that year. I was competing against guys that were probably, you know, 240, and they cut weight to make the 230. So I'd given up a lot okay. of body weight there, but... Yeah, but yeah, you know, typically they'll you know they'll get these weight classes um, in 200. Sometimes they'll even have a 175 class in under. Oh, uh-huh. um, yeah, yeah. So um, that's but it, interesting. I remember once yeah. uh, it was Ed Cohn, actually, of all people, uh, uh, Rob and I asked him, "Have you ever thought about doing things other than pure power, you know, power lifting, like uh-huh. strongman?" And he said, "Oh, I'm too short for that." So he felt like that was a disadvantage mm. that he, if he just simply wasn't tall enough, that height was a big deal in in some of these events. Yeah, uh, I don't I mean, know. Do you feel that, or do, do the weight classes take care of that? Uh, the weight classes take care of that a little bit, but certainly, it can, well, it can be a strength, it can be a weakness. You know, if you do a, like a a deadlift off blocks, right? Um, you know, I see see the guys I competed there. You know, I'm a five eleven. Um, just about 5'11", and, you know, if you're 5'7", you know, it's a pretty short-range deadlift, like a rack pull, where for me it's still decent range of motion. So that might help, but certainly events where you're putting, um, one of the events I have coming up is going to be a keg carry and then a keg over a four-foot bar, you know, so you load it like you basically just pull a, a keg over a, a crossbar and drop it. 
and then run back mm-hmm. and get another keg. And, you know, a little shorter, you're going to have to pop that keg way up high on the shoulder, stand on your tippy toes to get it over. Where right. someone taller like me is going to be. And that's kind of the same thing with um, if you ever have to load a um, an atlas stone, you know, onto some type of platform. So shorter guys are going to have to get that stone up higher on the chest, which is definitely a challenge for them. So... So somebody might think it might it might help others. Um, you know, I think the advantage can go to the taller guy. But you know, ideally, I, I mean, I like the strongman competitions where there's at least like four or five events. You know, that way it kind of I I feel I do better at that because I kind of you know if I'm not a great, for example, in a clean and a press, I can kind of make it up in some of these other um, events, uh, deadlifting or farmers carries or what have you. So. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the more events for me I like, the better in my mind. Um, that makes sense. Now, yeah. do the organizers typically set up, do they choose the events to be advantageous, maybe one or two for the taller guys, one or two for maybe somebody who's shorter or built differently, or that's not really the way they choose that stuff? Um, you know what I mean? I it's sort of yeah. even the playing field? Even in a little bit. I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, usually you're going to have like a pressing event to start, a log press an axle clean and press, um, some type of overhead press. Usually start with that. And then you go to a pull. Um, now, this competition, we're going to do a uh, truck pull, a seated pull with a rope, hand-over-hand mm-hmm. pull. Um, or the pull might be a deadlift, a deadlift medley or a deadlift. And then you usually have some type of carry event, carrying uh, kegs, um, carrying odd objects, things like that. Um, and then, um, you know, a lot of times you have some type of static holding event. You're holding on to, um, you know, you might do a farmer's hold where you just load up the farmers and then hold them for time, you know, or do a farmer's carry. And that's what's in this one is going to be a farmer's carry. Um, and then another, another stack event, the final one we're doing here in Chicago is going to be a plate hold. So just put your back against the wall, stand straight up with your back and, uh, you know, lower back against the wall and, and hold a 45-pound plate straight out at arm's length. Uh, once those arms drop below parallel, time stops. So it's a hold and an isometric hold. So, yeah, so I think you kind of, they do, you know, they kind of give it where, you know, if you're a specialist in pressing, you can press the world over your shoulder. That's great if you're maybe a shoulder guy that's great and clean and press, but perhaps walking with weight, you know, or loading something up higher is going to be a little bit, uh, you know, Planted for the for the taller guy, so I think that's you know it, it's pretty good. And it, you know, in, with five events, usually the overall more athletic, stronger person does does win. Then you know, I feel then it's right. it's really a good measure of strength and athleticism. So we're just about yeah. to go to break here, but um, so that's going to be your love. Any bodybuilding aspirations or that sort of thing, or you know, I don't know. You know, bodybuilding bodybuilding's great. It's just all about. It's really about weak point training, right? It's just really I'd have to really hone in on my my weak points. I think I would like to, um, because you just nothing will force you to get in a better shape than standing on stage in a pair of posing trunks, right? Uh, you really have to diet. You can't just kind of diet for summer and look kind of good with those abs. You really got to do it. And for that reason, um, I'm thinking now, um, as I'm getting older here in my forties here soon that, uh, that, um, I might do a bodybuilding competition. So we'll see, see how it goes. That's cool. Sort of old school. We, we, 
sort of support that, I think. You know, I yeah. mean, the old school bodybuilders also did feats of strength and that sort of thing. And, you know, yeah. the crossover is fun. It's right, fun. right. I like that. You know, I would think my kind of like those physiques of that were really aesthetic, kind of, um, you know, strong, but really aesthetic. I mean, going back to John Grimmick and, um, you know, Steve Reeves and um, Frank Zane and um, Franco and, you know, you know, like you said, the old school way to do it. Um, you're, you're athletic. A lot of those guys on Muscle Beach were insanely athletic, right? Way back in the 50s and 60s. Right, you bet. Gymnast mm-hmm. type, right? And just really strong, too, uh, and had good physique. So I, I really admire that. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, everybody. We're gonna Let's go to break here for just a couple of minutes. When we come back, we're going to talk about the American Society of Exercise Physiology uh, National Conference. Uh, and we're going to ask Dr. Franson some of, you know, what he learned uh, at that event, what kind of uh, presentations were made and whatnot. Uh, and we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lonman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Rob Porch Fortney, and I'm here to ask that as the holidays approach and your thoughts turn to giving, you consider your friends here at ironradio.org. Over the past several years, we've heard and read hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. We are here for you. But like any other radio format, we're listener supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you can become a sporting member. Keep your weekly dose of education, experts, and gen talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button. 
near the bottom of the page or click the donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brother and Sister. Thanks for helping us create a place for better internet programming for all strength and muscle sports and a happy holiday. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome back, everybody. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I am uh, on the phone with Dr. Jeremy Franson from Chicago. And uh, I just got back from Chicago at the meeting that Dr. Franson's group was holding, um, the American Society of Exercise Physiology meeting. And before I forget, and just just so listeners know, um, Phil is going to fill us in completely on his uh, attempt at the 800-pound deadlift next week. Uh, I know people are excited to hear about that, and I am too. I actually don't know. I've been so busy with this weekend that I don't even know what happened with Phil. I haven't even looked at our Facebook page, but stay tuned for that. We'll get all of his insights next week. But right now we're going to get back to the science. Um, So, Dr. Franson, what was Mm -hmm. uh, either in order or what interested you most? What did you learn uh, this past weekend? Yeah, yeah, it was was a good – it was a pretty – you know, a lot of variety of topics were covered um, during the conference. Uh, some of my colleagues spoke, um, for example, Dr. Kumlili, really talking about cardiac rehab and the psychological. He's a sports psych guy, um, so that was that was that was interesting. He had a group from Loyola come and, and do some and talk on that. Um, well, another of my colleagues, Dr. Jacob House, uh, which I really found interesting. It's a little more perhaps molecular biology based advanced uh, type of information. Uh, I was talking about uh, different inflammatory uh, markers and um, the, how exercise can really, um, you know, mitigate some of these inflammatory uh, cytokines, uh, signaling proteins, uh, you know, with exercise. His, his research focuses on what's called advanced glycation end products. And for those listeners out there, just kind of what's simple uh, way to explain glycation is where you have like a, a bonding of a protein or a lipid molecule with a sugar molecule. And this can occur, um, you know, under conditions of, well, it occurs, it occurs in the body um, with oxidation processes, but it also, when you cook um, certain foods, like the example he gave where uh, you know, like a barbecue, you slap on some barbecue sauce, which has um, carbohydrates and sugars, and then throw that uh, piece of meat with this protein and carbohydrate now in a high heat, and it forms these, it's called advanced glycation uh, end products. And it's really interesting. So the, this, these, we don't know a lot about them, or we're really just elucidating the mechanisms of what's going on uh, with them. We know, though, that they these are also pro-inflammatory, and they result in a cascade of cellular events that can increase inflammation in us, um, like metabolic syndrome, uh, syndrome, as we talked about earlier, um, and diabetes, type 2 diabetes, that kind of go along with obesity and these kind of things. And, you know, since uh, maybe the 70s or beyond, when we started really changing the way 
some of the foods are made and um, these, you know, packaging or the way, the way that the process of making foods, you know that they're in a lot of our foods, um, these, uh, these glycation process. Um, and so his research and, and the speaker just before him, Dr. Mike Zool, talked about how exercise can really mitigate these effects um, of these pro-inflammatory um, cytokines in, in glycation end products. So by basically exercise itself, you know, it's interesting because exercise itself can increase certain levels of cytokines or inflammatory, uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines itself. However, exercise also increases anti-inflammatory cytokines like IL-10, yeah. for example, right? So you have it is exercise itself does this, but then these other compounds in the diet. And, and so his research is really trying to find these mechanisms of, of how this you know, goes. And, you know, at the end of the presentation, a lot of the exercise, of course, is an aerobic exercise. So being the resistance guy, you know, I had to raise my hand and say and ask the question, you know, do you think this is um, also occurring with, with resistance training? And, um, it seems so that it would be, and that's, uh, you know, research is a little behind with resistance training, but a lot of it is the actual just contracting of the muscles itself. So, so a lot of these anti-inflammatory cytokines are, are released within the muscle, into the blood. So um, by just contracting your muscles, whether it's an endurance exercise or resistance training, you release these anti-inflammatory cytokines, and this can then slow down this inflammation process, which can then ultimately perhaps lead to some of these metabolic diseases. So It really starts um, to give insight, I think, about, for example, um, a lot of listeners probably realize, but yeah, just simply like John Ivey did some of that work with contracting cool. muscles will make glucose transporters, you know, bring mm-hmm. in the glucose you know, from your blood or like you're yeah. talking about with the glycation. I always mm-hmm. describe that to students like, a gumming up of your cellular machinery. You know, if you can look mm-hmm. under the hood, things are getting all, it's getting gummed up with these carbohydrate yeah. residues. And you're saying not only can contractions bring in the blood sugar and store it as glycogen, you know, basically deposit the glucose in a healthier way, but it's also going to reduce the inflammation from all this gumming up. Yeah, by releasing mm-hmm. these anti-inflammatory cytokines. Yeah. And so... This, this receptor from these glycation products basically is, is on the cell surface. And through the process of with exercise, you can basically, you know, slow down then the, the binding of these uh, glycation products onto the receptor. Um, and then, you know, all the negative effects that occur afterwards. So it kind of blocks right. then that process just by producing some of these anti-inflammatory and exercise itself. So, you know, once again, just showing how exercise, resistance, endurance training, or just contracting those skeletal muscles, you know, improves the quality of the muscle and it, and it protects mm-hmm. it against all these uh, negative effects, oxidative reaction, reactive oxygen species, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I think there are probably you- a lot of lifters who they think, oh, how can weightlifting be anti-inflammatory or, you know, it, mm-hmm. when I'm really sore, it's so inflammatory. And of course, acutely it is, but yeah. it's cool to understand, yeah, that chronically over time, exercise is an anti-inflammatory treatment. Right. Right. So, yeah. 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 And, you know, like, again, acutely, um, you can increase the reactive oxygen species, um, you know, during exercise, uh, but you also 
protect yourself against further damage, oxidative damage by doing exercise. So you have to look at the long term, how it really kind of plays out uh, and how the body kind of adjusts to that stimulus. And it's an, right on. you know, a positive adaptation. Yeah. So, so okay. So um, what else? What other juicy stuff? Yeah, yeah. So then another one. Well, part of it, you know, just to kind of before we leave that, um, one other group uh, did a um, Aaron Sutton and Aaron uh, Eric Essex. They did this. She's an undergrad. Uh, we try to promote some undergrad research, but she just did this um, presentation. They're ga- gathering data now on, on runners, but just with cold water immersion. So it's titled "Cold Water Immersion." limits glucose delivery after long distance running. I think just for our listeners, it might be interesting um, if anybody, uh, you know, has experience or um, has tried, you know, ice baths or cold showers, right, post-workout, contrast, going from a cold to a warm to a cold and, and effects on recovery. Well, there, this just research and its preliminary data is just showing how cold water immersion immediately after exercise can limit glucose delivery. So um, I know I've tried that before. I don't know if, if you have any experience, but I used to um, work out this place. They actually had a cold plunge pool. So I could go after post-workout. I could jump in this cold plunge, but then go right over to the jacuzzi. You know, it feels really good. I liked mm-hmm. it because it felt good. But, you know, so is that, once again, is the cold water, you may hear about this with NFL players, right? Um, well, they have other trauma going on in their muscles, but even after a hard practice, they might plop themselves in an ice bath. Um, right. Part of the, yeah. what they're showing, though, is that this might limit then glucose delivery. And, of course, post-exercise, those GLUT4 receptors are really sensitive to taking in all those carbohydrates into the muscle. The post-workout shake, and you want to get that glucose and proteins in. So um, perhaps immediately after it might not be best. It might be good to wait a while get the glucose into the cell, into the muscle cell, and then um, doing your contrast bath or cold water immersion or things like that. So a little you know, bit more Jeremy, supplies, but it's that's interesting because yeah. I, I just saw some papers questioning the value of ice, believe it okay. or not. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, like a, a lot of things we take for granted about the anti-inflammatory nature of ice. You know, people are familiar mm-hmm. with like rest, ice, compression, elevation. Um, and mm-hmm. they're actually questioning when you look at different – I don't know, inflammatory mediators or things like that. They were actually questioning and just saying, where's the data? You know, where are the hard data about ice? And now you're also saying maybe we're using cold water wrong. Perhaps. Right? Yeah, right. As far as immediately post-exercise, you know, if you're if you're going to in- inhibit glucose delivery to the muscle cell, that's going to, you know, limit then your recovery. I mean, you want that glucose, you want to, replenish those glycogen stores. So, right. um, you know, perhaps it's best then to get get those protein, carbohydrate drink down, post-workout shake immediately, uh, have some time there to let, uh, you know, the glycogen replenish at least a little while before then immediately going into the cold water. So, but it does make me think of another um, other research related to this. And I was actually, in, as a uh, PhD student in New Mexico, as a participant in a research study uh, where we did palm cooling. So we did a pre palm cooling. We stuck our hands in this little device where you put your hands around these two little cone-shaped uh, cold metal objects and you cooled your palms. And then immediately did uh, a bench press. Um, 
Uh, basically, it was, I think it was right around 5RM bench press, okay? okay. And, and now, and maybe some of your listeners have heard of this research, this pre-cooling. Now, in the past, it was pre-cooling before endurance exercise, but the interesting about this research, and it was published in Medicine, Science, Sports, and Exercise, um, uh, Young Sub Kwan, one of my um, um, colleagues now, he um, found basically that it was an increase in the number of reps you can do with a with a five RM load, uh, cooling the palms right before immediately before the bench press. So I went with my hands in the in this cooling device, laid back on the bench, grabbed the bar, unracked it, and did as many reps as I could. Versus the cooling of the palms and going warm uh, uh, hands on on these warm um, warming them up, there was no significant difference than oh. than the baseline. So. There was also there's also been research showing that with pull-ups, pre-cooling the palms before uh, doing a number of max reps in the pull-ups, pull-ups are significantly increased in the number if you cooled your hands before you did it. It's weird because you think that while cooling, wouldn't that kind of slow? You know, you kind of have this idea that if, if you're colder, the muscles more, I don't know, more tight or not warm. You got blood flow in there or what have you. But it's an interesting phenomenon. And um, I actually have a, an undergrad who's doing an undergrad research project who wants to look at if this would work for the lower body. So he's going to do um, foot cooling prior to high-intensity uh, cycling, like a wind gate test, and see if there's any changes in peak power or uh, wind gate performance. So um, there are at least two research studies that I know with the bench press and the pull-ups that cooling the hands prior to a max effort increase the strength acutely. That's interesting. Now, how long? Yeah. Was, it, was it a couple of minutes, or how long did you have to cool your hands? Yeah, yeah, it was several minutes. It was several minutes. It wasn't, you know, it was a device that um, basically, you know, it was actually devised for the military. The military had interest in this uh, for, um, you know, soldiers trapped in their vehicle. They couldn't cool themselves, and they could put their hands on this device. But I think it was somewhere around a five-minute period. Uh, to go back and look, but I was saying yeah, this is around five minutes where you'd have your hands in the spice and it's kind of cold on the palms, but not, you know, it wasn't holding on the icicles, right? Um, but it would draw then the heat from the palm. You have these, the, the, um, the basically the, the, the blood that travels in the palm, it's a, the idea is it's going to pull in uh, heat from the body and cool and have an effect on, on your whole body cooling. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the research we tried with that, really didn't see this a major effect on the, on, the, on the full body as far as temperature, but there's this local effect, it seems like, when you do it with the hands and then do some type of upper body strength that it has this acute increase. You know, five, maybe someone gets five pull-ups um, or five with their 5RM, they get, you know, seven or eight reps. Hmm. Um, so a couple of significant increase. So, yeah. You know what's uh, interesting, Jeremy, is in the last year, I (laughs) add this to the list, I guess, but so we've got stuff like bite down on a mouthpiece, you know, Mm -hmm. your hand forehand. And then there's these carbohydrate caffeine mouth swishes. I mean, these are things that somebody could do to add, add power output basically, or, or a few more reps. Mm-hmm. onto their sets. And the weirdest thing is these are things that just happen acutely in a few minutes before the lift. Yeah. You know, these tricks yeah. that are sort of coming out. It's just, it's kind of cool. It is kind of cool, you know, and if, you know, it really kind of goes back. I mean, it's really what's going on and it's, uh, it's I mean, the, the thing to think of is the nervous system, right? It's some type of neuromuscular 
um, acute neuromuscular um, um, increase uh, that you're yeah. getting with some of these, um, especially with the palm cooling. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting, you know, and it's kind of, you know, just talking about these little tricks. I'm, you know, when you did your group uh, talk about caffeine and, uh, you know, the effects of caffeine with resistance exercise or you have this uh, acute effect of, um, for strength, although in the literature, I mean, you you talked about this at the meeting. I don't want to steal your thunder here, but you talked a lot about this as how, you know, these in, uh, taking in caffeine can affect, um, you know, max uh, power, especially power output, uh, particularly in the upper body. So, um, you know, yeah. I found I found your talk uh, with your students really interesting with that because that's the first I I heard of that. So, well, I, uh, I, I guess I can agree with what you're saying about a lot of these, these tricks mm-hmm. uh, or, you mm-hmm. know, interventions. They, I don't want to make them sound yeah. cheap. They're just different things yeah. you can do, but they're neural, right? They seem to be central right. or peripheral nervous system. They're not necessarily metabolic because to a power lifter or someone in a strongman event or whatever it is, there's not a ton of time to worry about, like, did you burn more fatty acids and spare glycogen? You know what I mean? Right, um, right, yeah. The metabolic side isn't really part of these very brief um, mm. events. And if guys like you and I don't study some of this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. the literature is going to stay so uh, endurance biased. Yeah. Um, but it's cool yeah. that caffeine can be doing something more than just something metabolic, but right. something that's very neural. And, of course, you hear st- strength athletes talk about the neural side much more often. Right. Know? Right, and, you know, and I like to tell my students this, um, those, you know, I was there's a handful of students in my classes that are really interested in strength and power. You know, you, you have to think in terms of training your nervous system as well, not just your muscles, you know. We try to, I, you try to uh, you know, give the students some tips that I use training for strongman, you know. Um, for example, for deadlifts or certain exercises, speed reps or speed sets, I guess you can call it too, uh, I don't know if listeners are familiar with that type of training, but that's doing, you know, somewhere around 45 to maybe 65% of your 1RM, not too heavy, you know, 55%, and doing really, really fast reps, but keeping the reps low, maybe one to three reps, okay, but lots of sets, eight to 12 sets. So, you know, it could be like, for me, putting somewhere between 225 and 315 on the on the deadlift bar, and just walking up, pulling it really fast, setting it down, you know, dropping it down, rest. You know, I'm not fatiguing myself. It's not a muscle fatigue. I, I, I leave those workouts feeling more refreshed and stronger than when I came in. You know, yeah. I'm not, I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, and for some young, I think some young, um, you know, resistance trainers out there, you kind of have the mindset that, you know, if you're not training to failure, right, if you're not, breaking the muscle down that you're not really getting a great workout and a stimulus. And I try to convince students that, yes, you can. You can train and leave the gym not completely wiped out and have a, absolutely a great workout and contribute to your to your strength performance. Right. So, Actually, that's you know, something that Fortress will say often is he likes to leave mm-hmm. the gym slightly invigorated, actually, yeah. you know, because of that yeah. sensitizing, almost that like that um, – you know, a nervous system um, sensitizing effect that you'll get. And, yeah. and unfortunately, Rob will point out how magazines, unfortunately, they, 
they love to push the very body bodybuilding mentality. I just yeah. saw a commercial yesterday about trash your abs, tr- ruin your delts, you know. Yeah, destroy, and, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, you know, those kind of sets, you know, you stop with your speed slowed down. If on usually set number one, two, and three are slower than, you know, five, six, and seven. But if you get to set nine, eight, nine, and the, the bar speed slows a little, you're done. You know, you do not want fatigue to accumulate. You want to, you're ramping up the nervous system and uh, really getting that motor pattern down, wired down. And, you know, for so it just can be like on the bench press, you know, 135, three reps, boom, 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 racked away, you know, a rest, right. a couple minutes, and then do that again. And, it, you know, to the onlooker, it might seem really strange. And, you know, for you know, I just remember when I was young, I some guys have body menta- bodybuilding mentality is, um, you know, this kind of idea, you don't, you feel bad if it looks like you're lifting a low amount of weight, right? You cycled your ego or whatever. Um, you have mm-hmm. to load up the bar and train heavy, train heavier, go home, you know, kind of attitude. But, um, but no, you're really, those workouts are useful for the nervous system. And then if you're doing a lift multiple times a week, it's kind of a deload day within the week where you still train that movement pattern, keep your nervous system fresh, ramp it up. And then we come back again um, you feel stronger. And I think it really helped me with my deadlift to get over, you know, you know, 455, was, get over 500 particularly. Yeah. Right. I was going to say, I like the idea of the multiple sets too. So you can get some mm-hmm. of that neural potentiation on yes. purpose. Like you were saying, set mm-hmm. four, five, six, you're actually more explosive than sets one or two because yeah. you've got some potentiation going. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it just, you come back on those, those heavier days, um, you can just feel it, you know, and it's a pretty, and it's an easy training tool. You know, you don't need bands or chains or, you know, some of these more complex. It's just uh, a day, a speed set day, you know, uh, of the week. And um, I use it for strongmen, have, and it's put me, pushed me through plateaus in my main lifts. And um, I just think, you know, it's talked about, obviously, Westside talked about it, Westside Barbell and others, but, um, for a lot of the young lifters out there, I just don't think they utilize it, and it's really easy to do, um, and it would really help if they if they if they applied it. So, um, right. one of my faves, yeah. Okay. Um, um, what else at the meeting? Was there anything else? That, well, you, you know, I I talked about my uh, research a little bit. I was talking about how creatine um, kind of slowed down then this muscle. Um, power and work during immobilization and uh, just to kind of just touch on that one last time and what I really wanted to look at and finally have my data analyzed for was looking at specifically what was going metabolically in, in the muscle and using uh, magnetic resonance spectroscopy and um, and I was really happy you know I just casted the forearm it was, unlike the Johnston at all where they did the entire arm I just did a small uh, muscle the forearm flexors I only had my subjects immobilized for seven days. Uh, they did the typical creatine loading, 20 grams a day. Um, and there was, uh, uh, for one of the exercise bouts, I did three bouts um, in, in this big magnet um, to look at their uh, metabolic function. But there was a, a slowing down of um, the, the normal loss that would occur um, for one of these exercise bouts, which... I'm pretty pleased, you know, it, for the limited time frame and the limited, the small muscle group, I think just, again, showing that um, 
you know, creatine. It's been around for a long time, but um, it's it's really this useful compound, Ana- perhaps anabolic, uh, anti-catabolic, uh, muscle metabolism, intermittent exercise, resistance training. So um, you know, I presented that data. Um, it's been taking me a, a while to to um, analyze it, but um, you know, I just think that if if you can't, if you are going to be at a time where you, perhaps you're training, you can't train, um, you know, those kind of things that it's, it's a worthwhile compound, another, another use for creatine. So, um, hey, uh, can I ask you something? You yeah. mentioned intermittent. Yeah. Um, I don't want to take the attention away from the meeting too much, mm-hmm. but when you gave us the tour of your lab, you said some yeah. of your colleagues were working on intermittent fasting, and I hate yeah. to condense this because I know there's lots of issues here, but yeah. can you give listeners the bottom line on this? Because we've talked about this a little bit before, and you're one of the first scientists that I've spoken to about this directly because there's so much hype and commercialism. Can you just real quick maybe give people a rundown about what you know about intermittent fasting from the work in your lab? Yeah, so the work in our lab, Dr. Krista Verde, she's um, done this work with what she's her intermittent fasting protocol is uh, every other day, basically an every other day fast. So the idea she she breaks them down in a fast day right where you're you're not eating um and a feast day where you're pretty much eating anything you want um so this was really interesting i've had a few really great conversations with her and her some of her data's published in fact she's going to put a book out uh, for the general public called the every other day diet which should be out pretty soon um uh, but basically yeah the idea is that you know, you, you have a fast day, and the fast isn't completely not eating anything. For her research, she usually has a small 500-calorie meal sometime around lunch, um, very small meal on the fast day. So you do get to eat a little something, um, put in your stomach. But then other than that, that's it. And then on your feast day, uh, her protocol thus far that I'm aware of is you can pretty much eat whatever you want, which made me at first chuckle a little bit because I thought, well, you're going to open that up. Um, I'll eat from morning till night <laughs> on the feast day you know there's no turn you kidding right. me i'm gonna go crazy on the calories here the interesting thing is is she's found that yes subjects have a very difficult time with a fast day um obviously couple the first the first week you know kind of like a hell week you could call it right where you're you are struggling those days are hard apparently though um the feast day what she found is instead of kind of going crazy, um, you know, with your eating is that there's this blunting of the hunger uh, on those days, uh, maybe not the first couple of days, but certainly over the course of a few weeks that they're not eating enough calories on the feast day to compensate for the fast day. So in other words, over a one week period, you're, you're at a caloric deficit than if you were just eating the same number of calories. Yeah, your normal diet. So you're just, you're not catching up on your feast days. Um, you know, which I thought was interesting, right? I thought you would be able to. And for most, they're not. And thus, they're losing uh, body weight. Now, I was concerned, and I had my conversations with her, well, what kind of body weight are they losing? Because with her original research or initial research, she did not do exercise. And so I'm like, okay. wow, you know, they got to be losing tons of mu- uh, muscle. And um, mm-hmm. surprisingly, she didn't find that. Um, she used a DEXA to look at body composition, and there wasn't a significant loss in muscle, um, which I found really surprising. Um, and they were losing, 
a decent amount of body weight over the course of, uh, I think she did it for a couple months um, on this diet. So now her new research is is using, uh, first I think she's switching up at the time of day where you, where you can eat that one meal on your fast day, and she's also incorporating some exercise. And I believe she's starting with endurance exercise, although when I talk to her, you know, with me, I'm plugging, no, they should be, you should do weight, weight training, right? You should really, right. I'm thinking, no, you want it, you really, the two, I would think that might be even uh, more important to protect the lean body mass, um, you know, and alternate your resistance and endurance exercise. So, you know, with all these alternate days to so these fasting types of diets, I guess, and you could maybe even uh, comment on this as far as, you know, increasing the insulin sensitivity, right, for for the muscle tissue, um, you know, especially if you do re- resistance training, I would think that that would help, um, you know, stimulating more more free fatty acid release when you do fast. Um, I think all of your readers and myself or listeners and myself would be concerned with, with the muscle and we would want to do uh, resistance training. But, yeah, so this is, she's finding really good results. Um, she's gotten really large grants, writing a book, been featured in um um, BBC broadcast um, came here at our at University of Illinois Chicago and, and did a, um, a, a special with her. So it's, it's gained a lot of hype, and um, you know I think the simplicity of just you eat what you want on one day and then you can't eat on the next day. Uh, I think for some of the masses that the simplicity is good. Um, just you know, um, like any type of caloric restriction or some type of specialized diet, can you, do you have the willpower, I guess? And that's, you know, that's always going to be there. That's always a question with these types of diets. So I'm just looking forward to see what she gets with the exercise component, um, how that will change and accelerate perhaps the fat loss. So, yeah, that's interesting yeah, stuff. I'm, and yeah. I'm sorry to – I just so – when you brought that up, I thought we got to yeah. at least get a little tidbit of that for the listeners. But um, Yeah, yeah. No, that's really – it's really good. It's really good stuff, and it's really fascinating. So, Other thoughts uh, about the the meeting then as we start to just slowly wind down here? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I just really kind of co- – I'm concluding, and maybe – I don't know if you're going to talk about this in another uh, podcast, but – just your, you know, the, the the talk you did and your students, I found really interesting. You know, going back to, uh, you know, caffeine again. I mean, the most widely used, uh, what drug, right, in the world, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, not to say ergogenic A, but drug. I mean, what eighty, ninety percent maybe of the world population consumes uh, caffeine or coffee on uh, almost an everyday basis. So according to, yeah, yeah. to the National Coffee Association, their their 2013 data says 83% of Americans yeah drink coffee yeah, yeah. basically daily yeah right and uh, you know just going back to you know the the high intensity because I remember when I was in uh, getting work on my master's one of my fellow mat, uh, graduate students did a, a, a test with caffeine prior to a wind gate, high-intensity interval wind gate, couple wind gates in a row, and didn't find any results. And uh, But then you would yeah. see with this longer duration, you would see some results. Well, is that then it's metabolic, because you're fat-free fatty acid. But then there's a few others then with higher-intensity strength type of training, explosive power, that caffeine does seem to work, and particularly with the upper body. And then that's some of uh, the talk that, that you had. And I found that really interesting 
this upper versus lower body difference. You know? I should be fair and say yeah. that there are some researchers some, who have actually yeah. suggested maybe there's even more effect on the lower body, but I can tell you across yeah. different drinks, energy drinks, coffee, we mm-hmm. keep seeing the same thing. And it may be a simple coordination issue. You know, when you bench press, yeah. you've got this support against, you know, your back and your traps and your rear delts right there. And with the squat, even if you do a Smith machine kind of squat, there's still some postural control and there's, mm-hmm. frankly, there's just more muscle mass to coordinate. So it might be something as simple as that. But we keep saying the, seeing the same thing, which is not as much happening with the lower body. And I mean, imagine the take-home message to our power lifter is, you know, if I if I take, I don't know, four, five, six milligrams per kg of caffeine an hour before I bench, it's it's almost certainly going to help with bar velocity and power output and explosion. Uh, right. But the squat, it, it might not help as much. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's so mixed. And you know what, too? I think one of the things that I thought was interesting about all that, maybe we'll devote an episode to some of this, but um, it's also um, – there's timing issues, there's there's upper-lower issues, but in the literature, it, it looks mixed for power performance because the classic power test is, like you said, that Wingate, that yeah. bike sprint. You know, it might be modified. It could be 15, 20, 30 seconds long, but like a 30-second Wingate, everybody loves to do that sort of stuff. And then the, half of the people are saying it doesn't work for power. And it's mm-hmm. like, but that's a very particular power test. Mm-hmm. And it's not particularly upper body. I mean, I know it doesn't eliminate the upper body. You have to grab the handles tightly and all that sort of thing. But, you know, to the weightlifter, I, I just don't want the message to go out to the strength community that caffeine doesn't help with anaerobic exercise or power exercise because they're doing it all with a bike. Right. You know, I said, what yeah. about specific to our lifts? You mm-hmm. know, what about in the bench? Um, and we saw some pretty dramatic stuff, you know, eight, nine percent improvements. And I mean, now, that's not on one RM, people, right? But, I mean, what matters in sport a lot of times is not just how much you can slowly move a bar, not just the force, but how quickly, how explosively, you know, and your power output, your rate of force development. Yeah. And those sorts of things, um, they light up when – and we used Via Instant Coffee. And, again, maybe I'll devote more to this in the future, but that stuff is not regular instant coffee. Uh, and we analyzed it, as you know, because we were curious about that. We're like, woo, that is not regular coffee. And to be honest, the results were equal or maybe even slightly superior to what I remember from the energy drink data that we did. Uh, and if people prefer energy drinks before a lift, um, you know, this is very interesting stuff, especially because a lot of stimulants, and I don't know about energy drinks, I'd have to go look, but acutely they can interfere with insulin sensitivity and glucose disposal in the muscle that we were just talking about. But Mm -hmm. coffee, because of the other compounds, it enhances it. So you get a lot of the ergogenic type things, but it presumably um, wouldn't interfere with recovery as much as straight anhydrous caffeine. You know, even though the the straight Mm -hmm. caffeine might be slightly more ergogenic, like if you were to take a pill, as you pointed out, the coffee, if it doesn't interfere with insulin sensitivity, because there's there's sort of that muscle glucose sensitizing compounds in there, that's a win. And I know when yeah. I took it out to to Phil's uh, group out there at Strength Guild, uh, he went out and bought some. I think he and his wife. I'm like, here, this is the research <laughs> dose. Go give this a shot. And he's like, you know, so I don't know if he's replacing all of his Monster Energy drinks with it, but I would think from a 
payoff to risk ratio, I don't think you can go wrong with some of those new kinds of, you know, micro ground instant coffees like that Via stuff. It's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. You know, yeah, so. yeah. Great for those uh, speed set days, right? And uh, I'll probably have that before my strongman competition, for sure. <laughs> I would yeah. have my pre-strength my pre uh, strength training ritual usually does involve uh a couple cups of coffee or a cup at least so isn't it funny yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you talk to a lot of strength guys they whether they're into the science or not often they will do that pre-workout ritual you know yeah. put on some aggressive music they'll have their coffee or whatever it is yep. you know and just rock and you know what mm-hmm. came out this year uh and I, I said i wouldn't keep going on about this but peak serum levels i mean coffee will start caffeine that is will start mm-hmm. peaking in your blood within about 15 minutes and a lot of the studies have people do the performance test one hour after ingestion. Well, mm-hmm. there was some data that came out that said it takes a little more than an hour to really get peak blood levels. Let's back off. Let's try 75, 90 minutes and that sort of thing, 120. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was the magic 60-minute mark that the best performance seemed to take place, and that's at least in some studies. And that's what kind of blew my mind because then you and I were back to the same thing. Maybe it's not just a – humoral bloodborne thing but there's some kind of neural immediate you know slightly mm-hmm. more immediate effect but that the ergogenic effect is not perfectly paralleling the blood concentration yeah. it's actually happening before your blood peaks and uh that's very weird but also interesting to me yeah yeah absolutely i found that really interesting too um yeah i've seen like you said two hours post for some of these endurance, but once again, yeah, substrate utilization, that might be better, you know, free fatty acid mobilization, but for the strength, um, you know, and I, I would think most that do their pre-workout ritual are probably drinking, you know, coffee somewhere around an hour on your way to the gym. Um, right. I'm, yeah. I've known to sip it between sets sometimes. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's just, it's really, it's interesting stuff. And I think that, um, you know, once again, traditionally the research is really equivocal with this, with the, the, the high-intensity the high exercise, but um, the tests, they weren't doing the tests that were more applicable, the upper body strength testing and things like that, that, um, you know, that we're interested, your li- reader, our listeners are interested in. So, yeah. All right, wrapping up uh, then. What else? Uh, is there, was there anything else or final thoughts then? Uh, you know, final thoughts. A lot of the other talks are a little bit more um, professionalism, um, clinical exercise physiology type um, presentations um, that were, you know, probably outside the realm of, of what we talk about. Uh, but I just thought it was a very, um, you know, uh, well-rounded type of conference. Um, so a lot of different uh different things to look at. Like I said, ASEP really uh, promotes the professionalism of exercise physiology. So, um, you know, I was really, really happy with it uh, for my first time here, bringing everyone in in Chicago. So it was, it was, uh, you know, a great experience. And, um, you know, I was glad you could make it out. Uh, your students could make it out and others that, that came up from Texas and, and uh, other schools and um, some of my colleagues. So, um, just overall, it's a great experience, and, um, you know, I look forward to, um, you know, um, you know, going forward uh, next year and um, kind of continuing some of this research and some of the things that I learned um, from the conference and start, you know, applying it uh, to my own training, which I always 
you know, I'm kind of uh, that type of person where for me in academia, you know, it's easy to look at the research perhaps and see what's going out there, but applying it. And that's, I think my students really like that. And maybe you found that too, that, you know, you competed in bodybuilding. They really think that's cool, you know, that you really take this information and apply it to yourself and see if it works. And I think as a scientist, you know, the first step in the scientific process is make an observation. And if you do these things, you can observe things then maybe to draw your hypothesis on. And so that's what I like to take from all these conferences and these talks are um, how, how I can apply it to. And then um, perhaps that'll lead me in a new direction of research. So. Yeah, I thought it was cool. I think he was one of your students. Um, he was asking oh. me some very specific questions. It, it sounded like we were really on the same wavelength. And I said, do you listen to Iron Radio? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I listen to yeah. Iron Radio. It's He's a power kind of lifter. Funny. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. He does some, some yeah. power lifting. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, it's doing it. Okay. Well, thank you. I wanted to right. just give you some thanks for being on. It's it's amazing, I think, probably to a lot of our listeners. Not only do we get some of the historical guys on here, but how many really smart dudes that we get on that are also strength athletes. You know, the the meathead stereotype is so bogus. <laughs> and I think yeah. Iron Radio just repeatedly emphasizes that. And not just people that are in the industry, you know, smart guys like Dave Tate and that sort of thing, but, you know... Just a bevy of um, professors, you know, that go do strongman and bodybuilding. Like you said, the students think it's cool. And it does, a little bit of competitive cred at least shows that you've been there, you know. Right, yeah. Um, and yeah. you've tried it and you get insight on things. Like I've said before, there's not a textbook around that can tell me what it feels like mm-hmm. to squat 405 for reps, you know, or something absolutely. like that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. All right, cool stuff. Right. Well, thanks again. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Lonnie. Sure thing. Okay. Until next week, everybody. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the iradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.